Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Clyde. Artist, sculptor, weaver, printmaker, quilter, performance artist, lecturer, educator, Joyce Scott, all of the above. This force of nature is more than well-known for her work in jewelry, glass, and beadwork. In fact, Joyce has been called Queen of Beadwork. Born and raised in Baltimore, where she still resides, her art is rooted in her African-American neighborhood, a community that has impacted her life. But Joyce's work also reflects her views on all aspects of American culture, ancestry, and the world around her. Joyce has been featured in solo and group exhibitions at the American Craft Museum, the Corcoran Gallery of Art, Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Harlem Studio Museum, just to name a few. Her work is held in the public collections of numerous museums in the United States and around the world. Joyce was a recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Grant in 2016 and named a Smithsonian visionary artist three years later. Joyce received a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the Maryland Institute College of Art and a Master's from the Instituto Allende in Mexico. I can't wait to meet and get to know Joyce Scott. So welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Baltimore today. Hi, Sandy. Joyce, I want to start at the beginning because I read that you were exposed to art at an early age, courtesy of your mom, Elizabeth Talford Scott, a renowned fiber artist. Talk about that influence and what that was like growing up in a household with one hell of a creative woman. Well, when you say I was exposed, it sounds like I had the flu or something. (laughs) People ask me when I, um, when did you first start? And I tell them in utero, I was an artist from the very beginning when I popped out of my mom's womb. I said to the doctor, move, you're in my life. But boom, boom, gazing, (laughs) gazing. Uh-huh. My mother, Elizabeth Caldwell Talford Scott, and my father, Charlie Scott Jr., came up from North and South Carolina during the Great Migration in the 30s, probably early 40s, but it was the 30s. And uh, my mother brought with her an intergenerational knowledge of uh, quilt making, clay, you name it. They did everything because you didn't have the money to pay for it. So they made everything. Mm. She was my first art teacher. She was my first bead teacher. I learned how to embroider with beads when I was around five. And then sometime after that, brownies. I always thought it was funny that I was a brown girl in a brownies. I think (laughs) I probably used the ubiquitous American Indian loom. I was a weaver for a long time. And I realized that working with fiber really wasn't what I was looking for because this was the 60s and I was like a hippie in the 70s. And I was dealing with translucency of mind and thought and deed. And you don't get that when you weave the light bounces off the surface or is absorbed. So working with glass and working with glass beads allowed me to work with translucency. So at the age of 72, I've been doing beadwork since I'm five. And I think I might have earned the title, the queen of beads, even though I know there's no royalty whatsoever. Right. But you know what I'm struck by, and I said this in my introduction when I interviewed the wonderful glass artist, Beth Lipman, and I said that art was always just torturous for me. I dreaded going to art class when I was in elementary school and and in junior high and was so relieved when I got to high school and that that was an elective. But having said that, 
I just love art. I love going to museums. I love experiencing the talent and the creativity of other women. And so really at the risk of deifying you, I'm in awe of this ability to produce this creativity and to feel confident and comfortable in doing that. Go ahead and deify me. Go ahead. I think that it's very important that people who are not gifted artistically understand that you're incredibly important because you're the ones who look at what we do. You're the ones who celebrate and love the art that we make. So I'm always happy to be around folks who want to look at art and, and, you know, be involved in it as a viewer. But take us on your trajectory as you're growing up and now you go to high school. And was it just a natural act that when it came time for college that you were going to go to an art institute? Yes, I can tell you that from elementary school. And remember, that means I was in elementary school in the 50s. Joyce, we are contemporaries, by the way. Yes. Well, that's good to know. You were probably in a reform school or something, but I won't, I won't get on your personal business like that. I heard. <laughs> However, that meant that, uh, you know, my teachers always gave me art supplies, elementary school and junior high school to work with all summer. And then I'd bring back what I'd done and they would help me. When I got to high school, I went to an all girls high school here in Baltimore, even though it was a public high school. And we had a brother school right across the street. I was at Eastern. The brother school was at City, and one of my art teachers was there, Olin Yoder. And he was really a mentor for me and very important in my getting a scholarship to the Maryland Institute College of Art. But it was a given. I was always supported as an artist, as a young kid right through all school, even the principal at my elementary school would wait for me because I'd probably have on uh, all kinds of challenges. I'd have on like, a, like you know, 13 necklaces, something stuck in my hair, whatever. I used to stuff my training bra with like my homework. So it looked weird. And uh, she'd be there with me saying, now we're going to take this off and you don't need this. And you, now you can go to class. So in other words, Joyce, it's fair to say that you march to your own drummer. Yes. Did that come from your mom and your dad to be your own person? Absolutely. Both of my parents were rascals, but they also were folks who were sharecroppers. My father picked tobacco and my mother picked cotton. Before and they, they moved out to Maryland? In North and South Carolina. Uh-huh. They literally had to make a way where there was no way. Mm. Literally were self-sufficient and taught me to be that. And also I was being raised by the time I was in college in the 60s, this was the civil rights movement and where you had to question your own worthiness and, and the worthiness of your own ethnic group. And my parents always told me I was equal to anyone else. And that was the time where it came into fruition. Was there like a contrast of what you were encouraged to do and to be at home versus what it was like when you weren't at home? Were there opposing forces for you? Well, you know. If they were, I don't remember them or I didn't hear them. I still have close friends from elementary school. And one friend and I went all the way through high school together. And she's a very, she's a, you know, she has a master's now and she was taught in university. And she told me that the school counselor told her she probably shouldn't think about going to college. Hmm. You know, and she's an African-American woman. And we went to, an, we integrated a high school and I, 
I don't remember that ever being said to me. And if it was said to me, I'm sure I said in my head in no uncertain terms. <laughs> if to say and fuck off? It's probably something similar to that. And um, you know, I have a potty mouth and I don't want to be ma- remembered my entire life. It's a fabulous artist who had a potty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I also, whatever, whoever was saying something that negated my my worth, there were always like 60 other people who saying, you go, girl. Wow. Wow. So they took a really far back seat. Uh, and I was one of those folks who was raised by a village. You know, they say it takes a village. Right. You know, I would come, my mother would work in people's homes, so she might not be home when I got home. So I came home from elementary school, which was only a block away. We lived in an apartment house which was really a three-story house. The lady on the first floor would make sure I got in. I did my homework. I called her. As times went on, sometimes the lady across the street would take care of me and she we'd read and we'd make craft things. I mean, I, I had that true support in my neighborhood. Mm. Were you an only child? I'm my mother's only child. My father has four other children. So I have two sisters and two brothers. Ah, uh, Okay. Talk to me about what it was like to be at the Maryland Institute College of Art. Did you come into your own then? I can honestly say I'm one of those folks who keeps coming into her own. So that was me going from high school, going to college, getting really close to being a young woman because I was just very much a kid. Understanding what it would be like to have some kind of autonomy some kind of singularity, and also for the artwork that I was doing to be looked at, to be critiqued, and to have some real quality and have people look at it and tell me there was a a quality, I should say, people who actually knew what they were doing and who were preparing me for work. But I have to tell you that I went there absolutely positive I'd be a painter. And in my freshman year, I think it was, I was told to stop painting for the betterment of myself and the entire human race. (laughs) That was actually said to me. Talk about hyperbole. I mean, why? Why was that said to you? Can you, one of the instructors said that to me, and I'm thinking right now, if I'm a crummy painter and there's such crummy painting going on, not by everybody, but a few, I could break back in and make my retirement money (laughs) just by my crummy painting alone. Right, right. I tell you what happened is that when they said that, I always thought I'd be a teacher, but I didn't think I'd be a teacher in public schools. So I got my undergraduate degree in education and it was the best thing I ever did because as an art teacher, you have to learn everything, you know, all the different things to teach kids. And I was just going back over the things that my mom had taught me when I was a kid, the playing with clay. That's something that she did, uh, all kinds of stitching and working with yarns. These kinds of things were um, were inculcated in me because they were, you know, her passport for creating, for Mm. creating. But, you know, as I said in the introduction, as I rattled off all these titles that go behind your name, sculptor, weaver, printmaker, quilter, performance artist, eclecticism, is that the right word to describe you? Well, I I thank you for that. I love to overwhelm, (laughs) but I can (laughs) tell you that most artists that I know are a jack of many trades. Jill, make that a Jill woman. Uh, sorry, a Jack and a Jill. Okay. The both. Now I have to go through that, but yes, <laughs> all the Jacks, 
skills out. Now they have to do pronouns. He, she's, Fido, tap dancer. And, okay, I'll stop. I, I got it. <laughs> you sort of have to be because being an artist means that you probably aren't going to make your living. I was very blessed to make my living, but you probably aren't going to make your living solely through your artwork. So you learned how to do many things. And the creative spirit, at least for me and many that I know, is uh, insatiable. I'm not satisfied by doing one thing. I'm always sticking my thumb in and all of my toes in some other water thinking, I wonder what that's like. Mm. Times I'm very successful. Other times a fish bites me and I put my toe out because I'm obviously in the wrong lake. <laughs> right, right. Tell me why you wound up going for a master's degree outside of the U.S. What was it about the Instituto Allende that piqued your interest? This one is those terpsichore stories. I told you I got my undergraduate degree in education. And when right. I was my student teaching, I thought I will be a 700 pound alcoholic if I teach in the public school system. Hmm. I was very young. Some of these kids in the, and I was doing my student teaching in middle school were much more mature than I was. And they were rebellious in a way that I wasn't interested in. And I did a lot of substitute teaching and teaching in recreation centers but it wasn't that kind of structure that public school was. So I did what any self-respecting hippie would do. I went off to Mexico with some friends trying to find myself. We were going to San Miguel Allende because it was a bilingual artist colony kind of uh, city. It's a town, a colonial town that had Bayes Artes and the Instituto and I lucked up by getting there the very year they were starting a graduate department in the visual arts in crafts. That's what I took. And I got a scholarship. And then I was off to the races. Didn't have a lot of money. And my mom sent me as much as she could. My father thought it was a fool's folly. So he didn't send me any money. So I sang in nightclubs while I was there. And I made jewelry. And I did all kinds of things to augment my uh, work in school. Wait a minute. You also sing? Darling, I'm a singer and a performer. Uh, I work a performance Lu. artist, but I guess, I guess I didn't specify that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I worked with Ayla Wal Muhammad now. She's Muhammad now. For 10 years in the 80s, and we were called the Thunder Thigh Review. We traveled the entire United States. This was the uh, Whoopi Goldberg period. Scotland, Holland, Canada doing our two-person original performances that included uh, monologues and music and sets and props. We, I, I was on a TV show here in Baltimore. I really am telling you, if it, it, it's like for me, like, you know, when they talk about a, a dog and they just go, squirrel, I'm gone. I, I saw it, looked interesting to me. That thing about knowing that I am equal to others meant that I didn't have fear in trying it. Now, I'm not like like that in my everyday life. I am fearful like about many things. I live in the heart of Baltimore in a neighborhood that's very challenged. So I understand about that. But the art offers you such a, just a miraculous cleansing opportunity that I'm in. I'm just in both feet, all 10 fingers. Well, you know, I say this a lot to the women who I've met through this podcast, the sense of self 
is so potent. That's really a tie that seems to bind all of you. I think it's important. It's very necessary to to have it to be able to stand up for yourself because that that's um trying to figure out exactly how I want to say it because the sojourn that I'm on means that I have to be up to the task and I'm not up to the task every day. Of course. I'm 72. I've got two rotten knees and a bad back. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm yawning and I'm just moaning. Oh, I'm Mm -hmm. gone. I'm gone. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm just moving through because People say there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I say yes, and then there's another tunnel. Right. And for me, though, that quest is just amazing. Why Why else am I on this earth? Why else am I here? Am I here to be mediocre? No. Am I here to, to just accept? No. Or am I here to royally kick my own ass into the next kind of like am- amazing kind of universe I can mm-hmm. get? My- why else live? Right. Right. It's got to be hot and bubbly and just absolutely outrageous. And, you know, I also don't have a big problem making a fool of myself. That's another thing. Uh, So I'm not I'm in it. That idea of resting on my laurels or or accepting less. That really does also come from my parents because they they literally there's a thing that you say in in the South. And I, I sing this sometimes about hiding your light under a bushel and you would hide that this your excellence because of your ethnicity, because of your gender, because somebody would attempt to take away from you or be really insulting, call you the N-word, whatever, right? Mm, mm. And my mom was always, do not hide your light under the bushel. I tell people that the truth for me is that people had eight shites so I could have sugar. People died to put me in this position. So I'm running for it. They should clone you, man. You know something else, sweetheart, that you're going to go like, Joyce, my godparents were Pentecostal preachers and I did street ministry with them. They said when I was on the street singing and and I was probably like five and playing the tape, <laughs> I got my <laughs> My role here, and I'm not being facetious, is to deify you because I'm overwhelmed by who you are, what you do, and what's so ingrained in you that I was thinking to myself, did you have any rocks that you were pushing up mountains, woman? Absolutely. I am a, they, we call me red bone. <laughs> I'm a lighter skinned African-American, not super light, but lighter skinned. And um. People think that makes a difference, and it does for some. But as an African-American woman, I had to push all of those rocks. I'm not incredibly beautiful. I push a lot of rocks. I'm not the smartest person in the world. I pushed a lot of rocks. I smashed a lot of rocks. Mm. I made jewelry and clay out of them. <laughs> I'm smashing them. Someone did that. For me, when my mother talks about picking cotton when she was like eight and dragging, you know, you watch those films on TV. It's the truth. They drug, they used to drag hundreds of pounds to be weighed and they were out from the morning to the night and and how ingenious they were. I always say my mom talks about the first microwave and that was the way they would cook with their kettle and stuff while they were in the field and with stones. And that's the way they made pots. I mean, uh, ceramics, it, it just is, um, I can't be denied because that would be a, 
real insult to those who put me here. And I know how kumbaya and how hippie that sounds. And it's mm. one of the I gladly take from that period because it's the absolute truth. My parents didn't read and write very well. They went to one room schoolhouses. I mean, we're in the 21st century. And I can tell you about my parents who were living as sharecroppers the way people lived in uh, the turn of the century. Well, but they were in the turn of the century. My mother was 1916. Mm. So her parents were born right after slavery. To have that connection and know what they came from and what I am now, uh, I can tell you, I, I just won't stop. And I try to be a mentor to others sometimes as well. I think that's a great way for me to introduce this quote from you that Uh-oh. says, I believe in messing with stereotypes. It's important for me to use art in a manner that incites people to look and then carry something on, even if it's subliminal. That might make a change in them. So let's talk about what you mean by all of that. I know that's a mouthful, huh? <laughs> no, it's 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 powerful and it's potent. Well, first, I think all art does that in some way. The fact that I do a lot of politically and socially oriented art means that I am using it as my bully pulpit. People sometimes think that artists are born in a, and I I was born in an art house, but they're born in an art neighborhood. They eat art food. They only went to art school. You know, they only wear art clothing, but that's not true. I have to pay my gas and electric bill. I voted in the last election and the one before that. The same ills and problems that throttle other people throttle me. My best way of talking about it, my voice is as a visual and performing artist. Consequently, that's what I make work about. And I want you to look at what I do and I don't believe I'm going to change your life. But if you could go like, oh, really? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I did a one person show two years ago at Ground to Sculpture in um, Jersey. One of my favorite places. One of my favorite places. Right next to Princeton. and. I did a sculpture that was called Harriet Tubman as Buddha. And so it's a large beaded sculpture of her with her legs crossed. She's holding a stone necklace that I use as a rosary that was made by my mother. And this is why people are not knowing about Harriet Tubman. We know about her now, right? Right. The idea that uh, she could be like Buddha. I don't know who was any more enlightened than she that kind of asking people to take that extra step, see the duality, to see how things could could enlighten you, could educate you just by the way I do beads or whatever. This is important for me because this is my voice. Choice, mm. when did you start to experience success? And talk to me about that process. What's that like to be, quote, the bell of the ball? Hmm. That's an interesting question. So I'm trying to remember, I when I tell you I was going to school and young, starting my artwork in the 70s, the entire environment was for experimentation. And that meant that museums, art centers were being opened. People were doing just all kinds of wild stuff. So I'd say the 70s was when it was happening in museums at that time. Also, many of them were open to alternative or experimental work. I had many galleries in my life. I I always was trying to be in a visual, a commercial gallery. 
And I had a few simultaneously, as I do now, because I knew that would be the only way that African-Americans would easily be able to see my artwork. It's open on Saturdays. It's got business hours. You can take your kids in and not have to pay a fee. And there's usually someone who there who can talk about the artwork. Uh, when you say being the bell of the ball, most of my, I've been blessed with having one person exhibitions. And it's good because it, once again, allows me to talk about the things that are important. And it throws an African-American woman with consummate skill mm. and abilities right in front of people. And someone who is, I'm a big woman, I'm one of them healthy, thick girls, got a big, big red wig on. It's one of those people who might not look exactly like Alina Horn. God bless her soul. I trust and believe in her. Cecily Tyson, these are the women who I, you know, I'm, I'm giving them all of the kumbayas right now. Sure, sure. But to put somebody out in front of them, someone who's also, I call myself sometimes a cesspool of stereotypes. I'm fat, I'm black, I have gappy teeth, I have a big wig on, I sing, I talk trash. <laughs> uh, simultaneously, I am an artist who has achieved um a level of success because of very hard work and because of the quality of my work. And that should be shown to others. It also is that I'm an artist who is not a painter. I cry about that little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking about that. But it, it also puts an artist with skills that are different than what what's usually considered to be the best art painting and metal sculpture in front of people. Well, you were appreciated for that. And you yes, were recognized for that. And you were lauded for that. I want you to tell, know that I've been fighting when you're talking about rocks. I've been fighting the good fight about uh, the equality, the equanimity, how craft and fine arts are the same thing in the sense of quality. One is not better than the other. They're just different roads to the same thing. I use the same ability, intrinsic abilities to make a necklace as I do to make a piece of sculpture. I believe it's an artificial kind of uh, denominator that dares to separate sometimes gender. Oh, that's woman's work. Oh, slaves did that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, mm -hmm. it's useful or it's, it's using something other than a brush or a chisel. So, um, that's always been something that I have been uh, yelling about and working to change because because of what I said, because it, it is the same impulse to make both things. Right. When did recognition and respect and what's the other word I want to use? I like to talk in money <laughs> <laughs> come into your life. Was it? a struggle? Did you start out saying, hey, you know what? I'm making art for Joyce. I'm doing what Joyce needs to do. And then that became very public. Yeah, that's who I've always been. I know how that sounds. I make myself laugh because I'm sure I was just a, a repugnant. And well, my, my, you know, there are stories about how I was like that as a kid. Like, no, I, I'm going to do it this way, Joyce. No. And then it would come out fabulously. And they're like, 
Well, okay, Joyce, I told you so. <laughs> well, there's that strong sense of self, Joyce, that these women, I've said it before, I'm going to say till I go to my grave, that all of these women who I've met through this podcast all share this. Well, you kind of almost have to have it. You have to have a, a high level of perseverance because there are very subtle things that are always knocking you down or attempting to knock you off your pins or to make you shiver a bit. Uh, it's either your looks or your age or you're not using the medium that everyone likes or you are too articulate or you're not articulate enough. Right. You're, you know, all of the things, you're too black or you're too whitish. You name it, it's out there to befuddle you if you allow it. And it's very easy I mean, I'm not wanting you to think that it was a straight line for me. It was a lot of lateral movement where I was trying to find my way. But when I'm asked by uh, folks, what would you tell younger artists? I always say never stop, never Mm -hmm. stop, never Mm -hmm. stop. I only had one real, real job in my life, and that was as a drug counselor when I came back from Mexico. And I had a modicum of respect because we use art as I used art as my modality. So we painted on everything and we did little performances and we wrote poetry, you know, we did all of that. Mm-hmm. But usually the person who back in the seventies was a drug counselor, was a recovering addict. I am not that. And so they kind of gave me the stink eye when I tried to talk about the things in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> After I left that job, because you see the best and the worst of humans in that job, I think it was 1973, and I think I was like 23 or something, and I said to my mom, I'm never going to work for anyone again. I'm just going to make and sell art, and that's what I did. What was your first big break? I have no idea, and I I don't mean to—I've had that many breaks— And we're talking about me doing this for 50 years. So I really don't remember what my first break was. Mm -hmm. I know it was a series of things where one exhibition would happen. I'd be in another exhibition. I'd be doing, uh, I'd be getting residencies and I'd do performance in them. And then that would open up a door to another performance. But I really don't remember the first one. It's been that long ago. What's it like? To work solo? Well, it's very meditative to me. You know, beadwork is, especially the stitch that I work with, which is America, we call it the peyote stitch. When you go to college, they call it diagonal weaving. (laughs) And it is a sacred stitch and it is uh, very meditative, has a lot of math and a lot of counting in it. I'm doing pointillism because I'm blending and I'm creating by putting dots next to dots. Uh, It's, um, you know, one of the old canards was that uh, women were bad at math. Well, at beadwork, I I astound myself sometimes about the math that I have to involve myself in. I like it because you can tell I'm a talker. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you see that. Can you, you do you know that, Sandy? (laughs) I don't know. Let me tell you something. Thank God you're a talker. Exactly. (laughs) Well, the the point is, I often also, when I'm talking to students, talk about the necessity for me to leave my ego at the door of the studio. I'm also an uncertified multiple personality. So all of them 
Little Joys, Funny Joys, Joyce the Boxer, all of those people. <laughs> uh, Joy, I have one called Sadie, who's a Jewish woman from Largemont. All of them, <laughs> they're all at the door and go in to the studio, submit to the making and to the materials. And it is such a, a forthright and cleansing experience. I, that's a, like the third or fourth time I've said cleansing. It really is that kind of, thing where some of the ills of life are washed away in, in my pursuit to make this work. Talk to me about inspiration. I have none. I am my own inspiration. Not, okay, I'm sorry. That was ego. No, don't apologize. But what I mean by <laughs> this that was a lie. <laughs> I, the big lie. I, I'm, I am. Remember I told you I'm that squirrel girl. Ooh, I'm influenced by everything. Pop culture. It's important to me because I would like to understand what's going on around me. I tell you about working a lot by myself. And I honestly would hear young African-American women say things and I didn't know what was going on. And so I started watching The Real Housewives of uh, Atlanta and Love and Hip Hop and thought, oh, OK. Well, mm. that also also watching. I watch a lot of TV and there's a lot of just media on all around. I don't read as much as I want to, although I keep buying books. I'm influenced by that and by all the things I see on the street. All I have to do is look out my door. If I look across the street, there's drugs being being sold and those very people are, mom, let me put the trash out for you. I am influenced by my friends. Of course, a lot of them are artists and we just talk about what travails we go through and and some of the just illumination like you know i saw a light come in the window and that was it mm, mm. so i'm inspired by all of it and i talk to you about my about my ethnicity about my parents but also just all of those people who i have who've been mentors for me who would just and i mean a mentor doesn't have to be someone who's with you 400 years. I might have been, there's a guy here named Carl Grubbs, who's an amazing musician. And I have sung with him and he plays the saxophone. And when he does that, that true jazz stuff, I learn stuff. I just learned so many things about how to articulate music. That that stuff then influences everything I do in the studio. And that's what I try to do. I try to be uplifted and rounded. I don't need to be rounder, so I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Curvier, maybe. <laughs> uh, whatever it takes for me to be this person. I tell you, I'm on this quest. And so I don't want to be the same person I was last year. And I'm not. Through this uh, corny ass virus, mm. I, I am not the same person I was. And I, I am always surprised but I've learned new things about myself because I was I've only been out of the house twice in a year really yeah I can't I just am you know in that demographic and there isn't enough uh, vaccine for me and so I tell people my I'm having a probably a dental holocaust that might not be the right term but when my, <laughs> my dentist he might find three teeth and <laughs> um, of course I'm putting on weight so I'll probably I'll be a whole different person looking, but I also have been just incredibly motivated to make make work. And I've just been working, working, working. And my I'm on a text with people or I'm on a Zoom and they're like, go to sleep. You go to sleep. You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, 
So your art is bigger than you are, and it's clearly a labor of love. Yes. How great is that? Even when there are days that you might not be in love with what you've done, but how great is this that Joy Scott doesn't need anybody else, that Joy Scott can do what she can do and get joy and satisfaction and the fact that it can be shared? Well, I I definitely want to amend, amend that in the sense that Joyce doesn't need anyone else. Certainly, I, I do understand what you mean by that, but uh, a friendship is incredibly important to me. And then collaboration on certain on certain pieces of sculpture, like working with glass, with gaffers, with glass artists, working in a print studio, that is not work being done alone. And mm-hmm. I I great joy from that. My joy is being a creative individual, whether you do it alone or with others. It's the idea that I wake up and I can go do something and nobody has to tell me to do it, how to do it, whether it's right or wrong, good right. or bad. Right. I'm making it. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing because it also then influences how I do other things in my life with this creative spurt. How have you seen your art evolve? Talk to me about what that's like. Well, uh, actually, my skill has gotten better, Mm -hmm. you know, because when you're really young, you might go like, oh, it's falling off the wall. Oh, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, look, (laughs) got wet and all the colors dripping off. (laughs) Shit. Um, (laughs) Oh, crap. You know, my skill has gotten better. The breadth of what I do, I've traveled the world, so... I've seen a lot of stuff. That's another thing that makes you know how equal you are. Uh, when we are told in this culture that because of your ethnicity, you're not equal, you're not as good as others. And then when you travel the world and you, you just see that you are. Everybody's mm-hmm. just another human being with different hair texture. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, I, I become more of a scholar in the techniques that I use. And that is great to be able to help uh, my techniques involve and even make up some stitches and things like that. That's all wonderful. And then I've been a teacher for many years. So to be able to share that, I don't have like secrets, like, you know, people like, okay, here's the secret I want to, nah, I don't have any secrets. I don't Mm -hmm. want to go to my grave and really the incinerator (laughs) 1,000 years from now, whatever, whatever, whatever. 2075 and know that there's that I kept stuff because for whatever odd reason. So that's not what I want to do. I want to ask you what it was like when you found out that you won MacArthur Fellowship. Girl, Sandy girl. I had, I was a funny story to me at least. I was suffering from sciatica. I couldn't lie down in bed for long. I couldn't sit in the chair. The only place that was comfortable for me was where I am now at my desk, where my desktop is. I put a a pillow on the desk and I would fall asleep on that, you know, in the chair and falling asleep. The phone rings and the person says, blah, 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 MacArthur. And I'm like this. Who is this? You know, you think (laughs) a bogus call. Who is this? Well, I I was just been blessed by winning another award here. That's a local award for a lot of money called the Baker Award. 
And then, then before that, I'd just been awarded an outside studio space for three years with a stipend. So I was like on this roll. And so I thought it was my friends just calling, messing with me. And, you know, they were like, no, I see how they prove it. And they're like, how are we going to prove it on the telephone? I don't know. Send me, send me, you know, astro project, do something. You know, I was asleep too. And oh, I was in pain. And they kept going. I'm like, really? <laughs> and they told me everybody says no. And then they said, well, are you really surprised? Didn't you know you were looking at me? And I said, we, we were looking at you. And I said, absolutely not, because I think I was 68. And then I told them this story because I used to say to people, who do I have to have sex with to get MacArthur? And then like when that years happened, I would say, you know, who do I have to pay to? to, you know, take my space, to imitate me, right. to get my damn money. <laughs> <laughs> then I want you to sing at the Ford Foundation. I made all these jokes. I'm sitting at lunch and I'm making these jokes. And this woman says, I work for the MacArthur Foundation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get it. And, and it it's one of those things where, you know, God helps like dummies and small animals. I'm probably both. <laughs> and it came exactly when I needed it. The corny ass virus, uh, Trump, all of the things that made a dent the arts. And this is my last year. <sighs> I'll have to go back to the poverty. I'm <laughs> Somehow I doubt that. Whether you get the recognition on that grand scale or whether you get the recognition by having your work in permanent collections or that you're part of group exhibitions or solo exhibitions. I just can't imagine what that must be like. I just, yeah, I guess I'm deifying you. Like I said, wow, what, what a wonderful legacy, Joyce. Let me give you another story because I always thought, wouldn't it be great to be in the Met? But, I, you know, they don't collect like that. So a woman gave part of her jewelry collection to the Metropolitan Museum, and I had a necklace in it. I think the show is still up. They did a, an enormous show on jewelry through the ages from their collection. And there was my mentor, Art Smith, there. I was so happy to see it. People said, you got a piece in it. You have to go. I was there. I was in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk that much at that time. I was staying with a friend who has an apartment directly across the street from the Met. So I was very happy. We were, they were pushing me around and I was looking at all of this work. There was so much gold. And <laughs> this woman came up to me from the Pratt and said, are you Joyce Scott? Yes. She said, my class is here. Can we come and talk to you? Now, what is that supposed to do? But make my, you know, make me like puff up. And I did. And many mm -hmm. of them were Chinese. And we talked about, uh, you know, the kind of surface design and elements in China and related to my work. And then I was quelling all over these um, uh, really, this is the truth all over this beaten gold funerary thing from Egypt and these sandals. And I kept saying all of this Yiddish. And this woman came up to me and said, how do you know? I mean, out of the blue, how do you know so much Yiddish? It was partially an indictment. And I said, I'm bluish. <laughs> I, said, I said, look, there's so many black people and so many Jewish people work together in Baltimore that I'm bluish. And then finally we got to my work and there it was. 
sparkling, glowing. And I just was in tears because my parents weren't with me. Mm-hmm. I was with a very good friend who's older than I, the lady who I stay with, Eve Brandt, who used to own a gallery that I showed in in Houston 100 years ago. <laughs> and that was for me because Archmith and I were in this exhibition with artists from around the world throughout. Uh, they probably had something from Tut in it throughout <laughs> the centuries. I'm serious. It was that many, that many eras that encompassed. Uh-huh. And, and that I knew that yeah. I could tell my godchildren to go and to take friends because their auntie was in the Met. And that <laughs> meant a lot because not so long ago, that would not have happened. For sure. For sure. For oh, sure. how wonderful, <laughs> wonderful to experience the recognition and the accolades, not posthumously. And that's what's so wonderful. Well, Sandy, you know, I'm reveling in it. Oh, here's the other story I didn't tell you in my head, you know, because I make up all this stuff. Okay. I swore if I got like a giant hunk of money, like the MacArthur, I would take out like 10 grand in $1 bills and shape it into a man on my bed and wall around in it. <laughs> and I was thinking about, I would do the, the an homage to Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Ah. <laughs> and wall <water laughs> all around in dollar bills and think of the And you know, I was of course joking. People thought I was telling the truth. So did you put the dollars on the <laughs> bed? Crazy. See, nobody would put that past you. You've got a reputation, Joyce. That's the unfortunate part, my reputation. Oh, that's <laughs> that kind of reputation. So and I good. probably would have done it if I could have made a dollar extra. I might have done it. All I have to say is this has been the most delightful hour of meeting and get to know you. I love what I do. I meet the most fabulous women and I can't thank you enough for saying, I don't know who the hell this woman is, but I'll talk to her. It was so easy and absolutely fascinating. And I just can't get over how much I've enjoyed this. Thank you. I enjoyed it too, Sandy. I want you to know I had a private detective Look you up because I wasn't coming on here if you know you was crazy or you'd been. And what arrested. did he find? What did he come up with? He found out that you were crazy and arrested many times. And I said, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what I have to say to you. I'm always game if you would like to do a part two. And I really, really appreciate your taking the time and sharing your life and your art with us. It's been well, thank just you. fabulous. Thanks for asking, Sandy. Thank you very much for being wonderful. And thank you. And why don't we plan to do something when I can come to New York? I'll dress fabulously. Oh, then you'll show me up. You'll have champagne. Uh, Not Prosecco, champagne. Okay. All right. You could spend a dollar. I see what I can do. I'll see what (laughs) I can do. But I do ask you this. You're more than welcome to come back for a part two. So keep us in your loop. Okay, Joyce? All right, love. Love it. Thank Thank you. you. Thank Thank everyone and have a wonderful day, sweetheart. You too. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.